Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life, and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs, coaches, and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. I'm talking today with Alexa Clay. She is best described as a culture hacker and innovation strategist and the co-author of The Misfit Economy. Welcome, Alexa. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I have been reading your book and it has been a fascinating read. I think it's a one of a kind book. I haven't come across a book like this before. And so congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's fantastic to hear. Yes. So, you know, the work that I do is, as I like to tell people, I spend a lot of time in crevices between the old and the new. And Mm -hmm. sides push really hard because the old doesn't want to give way and the new is not willing to wait anymore. Mm -hmm. Somewhere when I was reading your book, I could see themes of my own life resonated in there in parts of it. And I think anybody who is trying to live in a manner that doesn't fit in with the norms, be that expectations of the kind of careers you should have or the way you should be you know, leading your life, will probably find that this book resonates a lot with what they're trying to do because a book about people who are misfit and have no desire whatsoever to try and conform to the norms. I mean, there are 30 or so case studies in here which range all the way from the arts, technology, acting pirates, drug dealers, <laughs> you know, historic misfits, contemporary misfits, you know, which, whichever category somebody might want to identify themselves with. And, and at the heart of it, it's also about, you know, change and innovation. So I wanted to begin by asking you, what was the inspiration for having written this book? Because we've seen plenty of books about innovation lessons from Google and you know, Toyota and all of that. But to go to the underground economy, to talk to the pirates, to talk to the drug dealers, what took you there? I mean, I couldn't agree more with, with your premise. I, I think, to be honest, it was really about this tension between the old and the new. And I think you know, my life and my career has really been a hedge between working within in old incumbent systems, you know, huge companies that are looking to sort of reprogram themselves in certain ways, as well as trying to, to work in the fringes and finding really emergent models that haven't quite normalized or haven't quite mainstreamed as cultures and what we can learn from them. So I started out working really with people within huge, massive, old incumbent systems but they were misfits within those systems. You know, we called them tempered radicals or entrepreneurs or insider misfits. And they were really trying to get these huge companies rethink their business models. And, and these were just some of the most self-actualized people that I'd ever met who were going against the grain of their inst- institutes, trying to get auto companies to think about mobility solutions beyond just car manufacturing or getting huge financial institutions to think about the future of banking or developing microfinance types of initiatives. I became really interested in that space and and this whole idea of how you create change in big bureaucracies. 
I think so much of the system that we're trying to escape from is really a legacy of capitalism that's built around command and control hierarchies. And so one of the the themes that I really saw emerging in the misfit economies that we looked at was the power of decentralization, the the egalitarian cultures that we encountered, whether that be historic pirate ships, pirate cultures created constitutions that predated those of Western democracies, and they had a very egalitarian ways of managing their their boats, to to looking at hacker collectives um, and, and the way that they had leaderless organizations, like within the group Anonymous, for example. So the springboard for me was really, you know, wanting to spend more time in underground and black market economies, which are massive. You know, the the size of of this these economies are more than ten trillion. You know, in some countries, it's seventy percent of the economy. So I think I wanted to detox a little bit from the corporate environment and just look at really different types of examples that we wouldn't necessarily see in Harvard Business Review or places like that. Yeah, no, I love it. I think I think that's that's just a, a great idea. I mean, I I often tell people that you know just because it's not been published in Harvard Business Review doesn't mean it's not uh, does not exist <laughs> or that it doesn't have an impact. There is an entire world outside the mainstream business education, which I think we do a huge disservice to by not looking at it. I often feel like that about the the Eastern ethos of management versus the Western ethos of management as well. I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many times I will read an article and say. Well, we've been saying that forever in the East. It's just that, you know, nobody packaged and put it out there quite like that. But, you know, the, so so I think it's really commendable that you, you went to look for these alternative sources of understanding of, of, you know, how to organize ourselves or, you know, how to innovate, which don't fit in, you know, the, the mainstream norm. I'm very curious, though, you know, the kind of people that you have been dealing with. Did your gender as the author of this book ever come in the way? of your being able to interact with these people? Was it a disadvantage or actually was it an advantage because they went out of their way to be nice to you? Yeah, to be honest, I think it was an advantage for sure. I think the facts that we were working within a lot of traditional types of economies that tend to be more patriarchal and male dominated that, you know, within the the sort of mafia folks we met or the gangsters that we spoke to, I think the fact that both myself and my co-author, two young women, that really that really helped. I think people weren't intimidated. They didn't feel like we could get them into trouble. I think they and, you know, for better or worse, they took us less seriously, which gave us a greater degree of access. So, yeah, I think I think it definitely was helpful. Yeah, they, they figured that you probably could do no harm. So they were likely more open with you than they would have been with, you know, somebody else. So that's that's interesting. I curious about that. So let's talk about these misfits. And I, I want to make it clear to anybody who's listening that the book in no way says that that's a lifestyle that is recommended. Rather, it's it's trying to draw attention to the fact that there is learning to be had even from people who are engaging in activities that we may not approve of in legal circles. But at the same time, just given the sheer size and scale of their operations, there are things that can be learned which might be applied to new forms of organization, which still very much would be legal in the way we think about things. So I'm I'm curious, when you talk to all these misfits, what was the primary motivation? Did you see any sort of a common 
thread. So, you know, people say, we, patients will say, we want to be at the cutting edge of things. And I always say, mm-hmm. well, you know, the cutting edge of things is also the bleeding edge of things. And do you have the guts to be at the bleeding edge of things? Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, did you see any sort of a common, you know, thread running across these people or their motivations? Something that you can say, you know, I think that that more than anything else defines a misfit. Yeah, I think we definitely saw some common themes, but I think we also encountered so much great diversity. And I think even I wouldn't necessarily equate black market and informal economies with innovation. You know, in some cases, you know, drug cartels in Mexico, for example, operate very conservative and with the same types of hierarchies that you see in companies like Exxon. Mm. So what we really tried to do was focus on stories where where the black market actor was demonstrating something that was untraditional even for the black market and mm. so this conversation that i had was with a, a guy called king tone from the latin kings and he was the leader of the latin kings in new york and his story really struck out stuck out for me because he basically inherited after one of its periods of of deadly bloodshed and really wanted to change the gang from within he was almost trying to do a change management program and reimagine the identity of the gang more as a civic movement like the Black Panthers. So he wanted to try and pivot them out of the drug trade. He wanted to create the gang as an incubator for a new kind of labor force, teaching valuable skills. And a lot of people accused him of just running a vicious sort of PR or greenwashing marketing campaign. I thought that was just so interesting. And the first comment that he made to me was, don't call us a gang, call us an organization. You know, we do recruitment and retention like any other organization. We think about our brand and we think about our culture. Mm. So would you say that the, the common thread there is of not accepting what the prevailing norms are? Is, is, that, is that what it basically comes down to of not accepting the status quo and saying it can be different, it has to be different? Yeah, exactly. It's really about questioning what you've inherited and questioning the norms and rules around you. I think sometimes misfits do just get this bad rap as being outsiders or sort of weird for no good reason. But I think a lot of it has to do with questioning dogma and not being afraid to to be mythbusters, you know, Mm. to, to question established logics, whether that be why do we have to go to school? Could we imagine a future type of educational system to questioning the business logic of a particular decision to questioning, you know, even even gang culture and what that's about for Tone to take a stand and try and reimagine the gang was was huge. And a lot of people, you know, didn't like that. A lot of people felt like bringing the Latin Kings into more civic consciousness and bringing it out of the shadows went against the clandestine nature of the gangs. So he faced pushback internally as well. Yeah. I mean, there's this part, there's this paragraph in your book, which, you know, I think forms a link between, you know, the informal underground economies that you were studying and what's happening here. And what was interesting to me was that this is a quote from The Economist, which said that this is a piece in there called in praise of misfits. Yeah. which argues that companies are gradually coming to replace the organization man with disorganization men. <laughs> Well-balanced executives that were staples of many companies of the past are now being passed over 
for more disruptive entrepreneurs and creatives. Is there a fine line between uh, misfits and entrepreneurs or are, are all entrepreneurs misfits, but not vice versa? What's, what's the difference there? Yeah, I think entrepreneurs can be misfits, but not all misfits are necessarily entrepreneurs. Part of the remit and our agenda in writing this book was really to help expand the idea of entrepreneurship and really bring attention to folks that have this entrepreneurial mindset, but aren't that hoodie wearing college dropout or aren't the sort of Zuckerberg types of the world. A lot of the people that we spoke to their fairy tale doesn't end with this nice IPO. It often ends with prison time. And that's just such a different, you know, set of expectations. And so we really tried to focus on people where the end goal wasn't just creating a company. Maybe it was finding a radically new method of curing the world of violence, for example, or maybe it was creating a prank that had, you know, viral impact across the world or creating a collective. So we really focused on on people that were much broader than just traditional entrepreneurs, but we're really trying to change change systems or change cultures in a lot of ways. And so in the book, you talk about the different strategies that misfits use often. They are hustling, hacking, provoking, and pivoting. And each of them are very interesting, and there are some very um, stories out there, but I wanted to focus on a few for the purpose of, of our conversation. The first one is around hustling. So tell us a little bit about this idea of hustling, what it really means. And and if you could share with us the story of Defy Ventures, which I think has a very, very interesting to the way we think about a few things in organizations. Yeah, I think hustle is is a great theme because it, it really is something we saw in the underground and black market and informal economies, but then we also saw it amongst this burgeoning freelancer economy, you know, in this this entrepreneurial scene. And and it's it's just the idea of, you know, really going for something about using whatever tools you have at your disposal to achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve. So being very opportunity driven. And often it was it was uh, around this idea of sort of scarcity being the mother of invention. I remember we were sitting down with a bunch of ex-prisoners who just recently got an, out of jail. And one of them, we were interviewing them, and one of them just pointed around the room and said, you know, in this room, there are a hundred different weapons. I could kick in the sink and make a knife out of that. Or he said he could melt the plastic chair and make a razor. So he was thinking incredibly resourcefully about just even that room and that environment. And I think so many of the people that we interviewed particularly in the black market and informal economy, have to have that opportunism, you know, have to have that resourcefulness and frugality of making something out of nothing. And Defy Ventures is, you know, recognizes that. Defy is an organization that is set up to basically transform the hustle of ex-cons and recognizing that people that are in prison have amazing entrepreneurial skills. You know, someone that ran a heroin business, for example, knows how to do customer recruitment and retention, knows how to manage quality products, but they were just misdirected or misapplied in the black market economy. And so how do you take those skills? How do you get these folks to re to rewrite their CVs and move into the formal economy? So Defy connects ex-cons with amazing opportunities, gets them through an accelerator program, connects them with venture capital and gets them to start formal businesses. And so that was just incredible to meet the founder, Catherine Hoke, and a lot of the graduates of that program, you know, recognizing that 
within prison populations of the world, we have these amazing entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, the reason why it really caught my attention was because I often talk about the fact that organizations have a very limited view of what they think as talent and where they can find it. Uh, Be that in terms of, you know, returning mothers, or it could be in terms of people with invisible disabilities. It's a very narrow, narrowly structured system, which kind of works against itself in some ways. And so, you know, Defy Ventures, and I went to their website, defyventures.org, and there was a quote there by Catherine that really, you know, I found a very powerful quote which said, no, we are all X something. I wish we'd ask ourselves, what would it be like if I was only known for the worst thing I've done? Moved by empathy, we'd recognize people for who they are today and not for the mistakes they made yesterday. Millions with criminal histories would unlock their potential. I think that's, you know, it's a very, very powerful view, not just of talent, but humanity. Um, Yeah, I mean, imagine that. Imagine taking your CV to a potential employer and having on it just all the worst things you've ever done. And that's basically the life of the, of, you know, ex-prisoners. They are known just by their crime and they you know, people don't employ them. There's, they face enormous prejudice in trying to get jobs. And that often pushes them back yeah. into reoffending because they don't have those economic opportunities. True, true. Let's talk about hacking. Hacking is a word that has uh, entered into the lexicon uh, in a very big way. We talk about life hacks. We talk about business hacks. And at the heart of it, I think it's all about being able to figure out a system such that you can probably short circuit or uh, shortcut what, whatever it is that you're dealing with, whether it's like a software system or, you know, some, some other control that other people can't figure out. So tell us a little bit more about the hacking as a technique and perhaps a story of who used it successfully. So I think you're exactly right. I think we've seen how the hacker ethos has really become mainstream and it's no longer just applied to computer programmers, it's really become a verb. And also, you know, a, a really is perceived positively. Even I know Zuckerberg calls Facebook a sort of hacking company. And I think a lot of people would dispute that, particularly those who are more radical. But at, at its core definition, hacking is really about having the courage to take on the establishment to, you know, in our view, to change it for the better. It's about really intimately knowing a system so you can more effectively take it apart and put it back together in a more improved way. And so one of the folks that we interviewed in the book is a, is a man called Gary Slutkin, and he, he did exactly this. I would definitely call him a reluctant hacker because, uh, you know, he's actor by training. He worked in Africa for over 15 years treating infectious disease. And what he then, you know, burnt out and came back to the U.S. and what and started just reading the newspaper in his hometown of Chicago. And what he realized was he was seeing all of these crazy stories of of murder and violence in his hometown. And he started studying these patterns of violence and realized that they they basically violence spreads much like an infectious disease, much like malaria, tuberculosis. So he basically took evil out of the equation. He said, these aren't bad people. This is a this is a public health threat. How do we treat this as a public health issue? And from there, he started creating a network of violence interrupters. So people that could prevent the transmission violence at its source. And these basically, through his organization, Cure Violence, these interrupt provide a really trusted intermediary in communities where the police aren't necessarily trusted. 
They're called in to mediate situations where violence outbreaks might occur. And it was just incredible to hear how, you know, for some within incumbent systems, within the old guard of, you know, a discipline and punish kind of approach, he was flying in the face of that. He was really questioning the police, questioning local government, questioning so much about how we think about this problem of violence and doing it through a very objective public health kind of lens. And so he's come to see himself more and more as a hacker because he's an outsider with someone with no background in this, this issue of violence, but is applying a discipline from his training to this field. And I think that's what we need more of. We need more of these outsiders who are able to come into our incumbent systems and shake them up and look at things with fresh views and perspectives and bring in interdisciplinary expertise that we might not have valued. And that's exactly what we have to do within companies. We have to, leaders within companies have to create attractive environments for, for misfits and for outsiders who might not necessarily normally be there. You know, how do you bring, I was talking to a senior vice president at a major pharmaceutical company, and he was like, how do I bring entrepreneurs? How do I bring social entrepreneurs into this company? How do I make it attractive for them? Because they recognize that they had a kind of copycat type employee built around, you know, you had this quote earlier of the organization man. And I think the pendulum is now swinging in the other direction. We need more informality at the workplace. We need more diversity of talents. And so that's becoming really important. Yeah. You know, the the beautiful part about this podcast series is that I find so many threads, you know, uh, intermeshing. And in Franz Johansson's work, the Medici effect, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. Mm. He talks about interfaces coming together and innovation happening at interfaces. So this business of seeing violence as a health, public health issue, you know, was, was interesting because you're taking two different fields and trying to put it together for a very innovative approach. But also what stands out for me, both in the hustling example of seeing, you know, prisoners as, as, as talent or entrepreneur, and this example in Chicago being uh, able to look at it as a public health problem, reframing the in exactly 360 degree opposite terms, right? So prisoners would never be equated with talent, but that's how they were thinking about them. Violence would not ever be seen as as a health situation, but you know, framing it as such. So just changing the lens problem can throw up such an interesting set of uh, solutions. But the third example that I want to talk to you about is probably close home to our listeners, uh, which is a story from Accenture, actually. And mm-hmm. interestingly, a story of Gip Bullock and how he ended up being a misfit within Accenture. When I was reading in the book, I realized I'm already connected to him on Twitter. Again, it's all about <laughs> you know threads coming together. So tell us about that story, because I think that more than any other story in the book will likely resonate with the listeners because it's closest home to the environment they are experiencing right now in organizations where they, a lot of them want to be that misfit, but they're not exactly sure what to even do about it. And And his is a story which kind of, you know, provides an interesting insight in, into this, you know, solution that Bullock created for himself. Yeah, I mean, I've I've known Gib now for for over seven years, and he was one of the first. I mentioned these sort of insider misfits before. He was one of the first real entrepreneurs that I met within the private or corporate sector, and I was just blown away by his authenticity. You know, he he worked for Accenture. 
And he was just sitting on the tube one day and saw this volunteer opportunity in the Balkans and just went for it. He, he, you know, basically took a leave of absence, went to the Balkans. And, you know, during a time when that area was very unstable, he went about building local economic development. And he really had this epiphany. You know, he saw how a lot of the volunteers there were, you know, ill-prepared or ill-trained to create the types of businesses that would need to get developed. And he just felt like the private sector could contribute greatly. So when he went back to venture, he pitched this entirely new venture, which was to create a, a not for profit arm within Accenture where they could do this type of development work, where they could get the best top talent, get their consultants work on real societal problems. And that was incredible. And, and just for Gibb to bring these two worlds together, I think the, the thing that we saw within this idea of pivoting, which we talk about not in the lean startup idea of pivots, but we talk about it at a very personal level, you know, this this experience of enacting a, a kind of dramatic change in the course of your life to, to find that greater fulfillment and inspiration. And this was something that Gibb was able to do. He was able to take this incredible opportunity of, of volunteering that he had and bring it back and make it meaningful to his employer and to Accenture's core business. Yeah. And so that I think more and more it would it's the people that are successful at being misfits within organizations are able to bring their whole selves into the workplace and are able to to bring entrepreneurship into the workplace. They're able to behave as entrepreneurs and, you know, pitch their ideas and not just inherit a job description, but really rise above that. So his stories really inspired me. And, and he also was pretty clever and crafty in the ways that he got that, you know, the ways he got buy-in at Accenture. He created a fake press release, for example, and you know, he was just really creative in the ways that he pitched that inwards. Yeah, no, that that story is has so many layers to it. I mean, I've read that story a few times. It's the one story in the book that I read, you know, uh, a few times because you know it talks about the idea of taking an employee and their inspiration and their purpose and blending it with the organization's need and its purpose. You know, there's a Marcus Buckingham's book. And there's a quote in there that I often uh, refer to, which is that when an organization search for value and an individual search for meaning coincides, that's where the magic happens. And I think that this was a very, very classic example of, of that guiding. Uh, also, it brought home very powerfully the fact that, you know, when you're trying to be a misfit in a system that's not used to dealing with misfit, there is a certain level of empathy with which you have to approach other people and yeah. recognize that they they may be operating from a position of fear, of fear of failure, fear of the unknown or you know their own reputation. And so you need to understand people at a deeper level. And this is the line that I really like, that being a misfit requires that you have a bit of double consciousness, able to see the logic and rationality of others' viewpoint while maintaining your own conviction. It also requires... Uh, a, a long-term perspective and an awareness of one's own biases. So, frankly, I mean, this sounds like a far more evolved definition <laughs> of someone than even what we would expect of regular employees. But I think the other thing that came home very powerfully, and I think your father's story was in the book as well, which is that it sounds great, you know, you're a misfit and you're trying to change the world and all of that. But 
it can also be an incredibly lonely place to be in because you know it it involves taking other people with you and then you know it can be isolating but i love your advice in the book which is you know don't just be content with being uh, lonely or being misunderstood you have to take people on the journey with you yeah 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 i think that's incredibly important the double consciousness is just to have so much maturity i think if you're trying to bring something new or different into an older system you really have to understand the values and language and brand that you're working with then you have to find ways of selling in what you're doing in a way that's authentic but also is aligned and i think the match the match that you talked about between that own employee's personal search for meaning and corporate values is really difficult and it's a dance and there's not always that perfect alignment and so i think you really have to be political sometimes in in navigating that bureaucracy and finding people who can support you and who can also help you to better understand the culture you're operating with. I think for so many new employees into a company or millennials, they have fantastic ideas, but they have no idea about the culture they're operating with. And so they don't necessarily find that success. And so something that we've seen that's been really great is when you have really senior level employees within a company that can help mentor younger employees, all these types of things. I agree. I, I, I just feel that learning to be a misfit is also an art <laughs> or a successful misfit i might say kind of wrap up i wanted to talk to you a little bit about the perspective of someone who might be listening to this and saying okay i see the need for you know distributed authority for us to have more fits in the organization if you're looking for innovation etc i know that you're the co-founder of the league of entrepreneurs so I'm sure you'll have a perspective on this. What is your advice to leaders who are trying to create a culture in their firm which is more open and accepting of people who might be misfits? Yeah, I mean, I think the danger, and we thought a lot about this, is writing, you know, we don't want to have a blueprint yeah. that someone can roll out for how to be a misfit or, you know, you don't want to prescribe the misfit path. It's like, how do you walk the ro- road untraveled? There's not one formula. And part of what we can, part of what concerns me with, you know, entrepreneurs, for example, that just try and imitate Steve Jobs or corporate employees that are just following a script is, you know, that's not the, the way that, you know, breakthrough innovation happens for each person. It's really a unique journey and experience. And so we don't try and prescribe to prescribe a path in the book, but we try and give some mindsets that can be helpful. I think the most important thing is really just about waking up and living with intention for yourself and really getting greater awareness around self-knowledge, around what makes you really unique. You know, so many of the folks that we profile, they were able to take things that made them perhaps a little bit of an outsider, a little bit weird and capitalize that, whether it be someone like Richard Branson, who was able to sort of make something out of his dyslexia and ADD and turn that into, you know, a powerful fire that motivated him. Or whether it's an ex-con who was able to say, you know, I have this amazing history of working as a drug dealer that can be applied to formal entrepreneurships. I think it's really a process of having employees search themselves for, you know, what are those assets that you want to bring to the table? And it's a conversation then with their employers about how some of that potential can be unlocked. I think too often 
is hired for a very clear job description that doesn't necessarily factor in their whole talents or their wholeness as a human being. So how do you let them as an employer get involved in more? How do you also spark challenges within companies? So if there are strategic priorities that you face as a company, how do you create challenges, almost like X prizes within companies that allow people to be creative and to be innovative and where you can identify more entrepreneurial talent within your company? I would say there's not a blueprint and I would be very cautious about creating blueprints, but I think there's a lot of a lot that leadership can do to really tune in better to their employees and create challenge remits within companies to spark some of this more positively deviant behavior. Yeah, my, you know, I, I have such conversations, the more I realize companies don't change, people do. So I, yeah. I really track to that idea of individuals starting with their own reflection, leaders starting with their own reflection, encouraging the people who are working with them to step back into that space saying, you know, what is my authentic self? What am I bringing to the workplace? What is it that kind of sets me on fire that can contribute to what the company is trying to do here? And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that. I know you don't have a blueprint, but I do have some strong <laughs> advice, which is that when people come with, to you with new ideas, please don't throw the rule book at the employee. <laughs> yeah. If it's not been done in the past, there's no reason why it can't be done in the future. But Alexa, thank you so much for your time. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I know for a fact that I'm going to be turning back to your book, not just for some fantastic stories and insights, but also inspiring uh, because all of us who are trying to do something different need to learn from others who have tried to do something different and uh, change the world often for the better. So thank you so much for your time. Wonderful. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That concludes this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait, your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration, more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrades with you. Take care.